traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, I'm John Prido, the U.S. editor at The Economist, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. This week, we're asking about power, satire, and laughter. I said to everyone at the start, look, this is a comedy, but we have to be respectful of the fact of what happened to millions of people. So the comedy isn't about, you know, isn't it funny that you know millions of people were sent to the gulag. It's more the, the comedy of paranoia, the, the, the comedy that takes place within the confines of the Kremlin. Our guest today is Armando Iannucci, creator of hit comedy shows such as The Thick of It and Veep. Armando has turned history for the setting of his latest film, The Death of Stalin, which explores the intrigue at the top of the Politburo that followed Stalin's death in 1953. The movie is getting great reviews. Armando, thanks for being here. You must have a lot of projects come across your desk the whole time. You've had you know, great successes recently. What was it about this graphic novel by Fabien Nourri and Thierry Robin that appealed to you? And was the kind of comedy potential in it immediately obvious? Oh, very obvious. I mean, I had been thinking about doing something about dictators, really. Uh, you know, contemporary fiction. Imagining, say, Britain had a dictator. How would we get to that situation and what would that be like? So I've been reading about the whole you know, autocrats and uh, the cultural revolution and, and this double thinking, all, everything. And, and simultaneously with that, uh, I was approached with the graphic novel and it was a French production company, Quad, who owned the film rights to it. They sent it to me and said, we're going to make this movie. We'd like you to direct it. We think you should direct it. And uh, I said, well, I'm a bit busy doing Veep. And they said, we'll, we'll wait. And, and that's what happened. But honestly, I, I read it and Instantly, I thought, well, this is the story. Why invent something when this is what happened? This combination of uh, terror trying to control the the minds of an entire population. And yes, the absurdity of it. I mean, the the way into the graphic novel, and which is the way into the film, was what grabbed me. It's, it's a true story. It's a concert. Famous Russian pianist Maria Udina is playing a Mozart piano concerto. It's going out live in Radio Moscow. Stalin rings up and says, I'd like a recording of this, I'm enjoying it. They put the phone down, they realise there's no recording. They weren't recording it. It's going out live. The uh, <laughs> the head of Radio Moscow, played in the film by Paddy Constein, runs out into the auditorium as the audience are leaving, saying, lock the doors, everyone, come back in now. Just orders them to come back in, tells the orchestra, we're going to do it again for Stalin. At which point the conductor faints and knocks himself unconscious. So now they have no conductor. So then they have to scour Moscow to try and find a replacement conductor who comes in and does it in his pyjamas and dressing gown. That's all a true story. That's all absolutely true, except in reality, they got through three conductors because the, the, the conductor number two came in but was drunk. So they had to go out and get a third conductor in. But I thought if we put three conductors in, it would people wouldn't believe it. 
Uh, but it's that level of paranoia that, that leads people to do crazy things. Going into the movie, uh, The Death of Stalin, I said to everyone at the start, look, this is a comedy, but we have to be respectful of the fact of what happened to millions of people. So the comedy isn't about, you know, isn't it funny that you know millions of people were sent to the gulags? It's more, as you say, the, the, the comedy of paranoia, the, the, the comedy that takes place within the confines of the Kremlin and the, the inner committee meetings, the Politburo or the Presidium, as it was known then, uh, trying to work out what the hell to do now that the, the great leader was no more. You know, I was taken out of my comfort zone doing it delib- deliberately in that I knew I was going to be directing scenes that were not meant to be funny. They were meant to be dramatic. And it was up to me to make those scenes as, you know, memorable as the comic set pieces. But also, in a way, I kind of want the audience to be taken out of their comfort zone. Yes, you're at a comedy, you're, you're laughing, but there will be moments where you're not meant to laugh and it will, you know, it will suddenly stop you up short. It's also uh, a different kind of laughing. I mean, yes. I had to, st- I'm an you know, unabashed fan of, of your work. I had to stop myself from watching Veep on airplanes because I, when I laugh spontaneously, I tend to kind of snort through <laughs> my nose in yeah. a way that other passengers started <laughs> to find disconcerting. So yes. I should stop... Death of Stalin is a different kind of laugh. It is. It's a nervous, you know, it's a release, you know, and, and which goes back to the research we found at the time was they circulated joke books about Stalin. They wanted to make jokes. And if you were found with a copy, you could be shot. If you were heard telling one of these jokes, you could be shot. And yet somehow comedy was a was a way of saying Look, you might have told me what to say. You might have told me where I can go. You might have stopped my work for this reason, but you haven't got my mind. The fact that I can make fun of you shows that I'm still, there's something still alive in my head that you haven't managed to control. And and also, I wanted the audience to get that sense of uncertainty as they go through it, that, you know, not knowing from minute to minute who the next one to go might be, you know, that level of sort of unease. The reaction to the movie in Russia is going to be interesting because you have an yes. aging dictator. You also have a lot of people who laugh at Putin. Um, yes. And also, um, I read in uh, a newspaper article that there was a pro-Kremlin newspaper who described the movie as a nasty send-up by outsiders who know nothing of our history and as a planned provocation. So, I mean, that seems like sort of a brilliant PR for the movie, but B, <laughs> you know, it arrives in Russia at a very interesting time. Very interesting time, and you know, and that quote was from someone who hasn't seen the film. And the Russian press I've spoken to already said they've enjoyed it. They said, "Thank God you didn't use fake Russian accents. We hate that." But yes, I mean, it's an interesting time. You know, in in Moscow at the moment, there are statues going up. There's a Stalin bust going up. But there's also a statue of Tsar Nicholas II. The message is very much, you know, the strong leader, the strong man, the, you know, the one person who can save the entire country. That's the kind of the implication. You speak to people because we went out to Moscow and researched the film. And, you know, I spoke to especially younger people there. You say, what are you taught about Stalin at school? And they say, uh, we're taught some people say he killed millions. Other people say he industrialized us and turned us into a superpower. You decide. It's that sort of level of, we'll leave this an open question. We'll leave it for you to answer. Can we make an abrupt right turn? My, my day job is um, US politics. Yes. I'm US editor here. So I have lots of questions to ask you about Donald Trump. Yes. I don't think America's it's that abrupt a right turn. 
Well, that's <laughs> we a whole that. other series. I'm not sure we I necessarily want to go down that. Talking of delusional narcissists who terrify their entire country. Yeah, but it's gone. There, there's a school of thought that says that Trump has killed satire in America because although he's been great for yes. newspapers, he's been great for a lot of the nightly mm. shows. The thing that seems funny about Donald Trump is Trump himself. It's the clips yeah, yeah, himself. Yeah. It's not, yes. you know, a character who's a thinly disguised version no. of him. Do, do you kind of... Do you buy that? Do you think kind of Trump is bad for satire on, on some level? No, as you say, and I've said this before, he is his own satirist. Every tweet he makes has its own exaggeration and distortion, which is what satirists do and comedians do. Um, any attempt to replicate Trump in a fictional form, I think, is going to suffer because it will never be as true and as horrific as the reality. I think, though, that comedy, political comedy in America has got stronger from another means, which is journalism. John Oliver on his last week tonight and Seth Meyers and, you know, the chat show host that you said, Stephen Colbert, Samantha Bee, The Daily Show. What they do is they employ teams of researchers and journalists and they investigate what's going on. If Trump is saying that everything is fake news, that you lot behind your microphones and your cameras are all fake into that artificial vacuum, comedians are now pouring in with their fact checking. And so someone like John Oliver would say, OK, Trump said this, but four years ago he said that, which is the opposite. Two, you know, two months ago, Trump said he was going to do this. Well, this is what's happened, which is the opposite. And he lays out the facts and the comedy comes from the, the funny sequence of truths that he puts out in front of you. So it's, a, it's an interesting time. I think what it is is there was a period where comedians had to kind of take stock and think, OK, this isn't working, you know, just doing funny Trump impressions, you know, isn't really going to get to the bottom of what the hell is going on at the moment. So and I think now you're getting a whole range of generation of comedians who have very strong effect on on analysing and deconstructing Trump now. Another thing that interests me about Trump and humor is that he uses it a lot, right? He uses a kind of humor that wouldn't make it into one of your scripts. It's not something I necessarily find funny myself, but he really understands the kind of political power of humor, that if you can get somebody to laugh at one of his political opponents, he's basically won and he's, you know, he's destroyed them. You saw this a lot in the Republican primary. He liked to come up with these little epithets for people. So, you know, Marco Rubio was little Marco. Little Marco. And he knows. Lying Ted Cruz, Crooked Hillary. Hillary. And now it's Rocket Man. Right, now Rocket Man. Little Rocket Man. And he knows that once you've laughed at the opponent, he's kind of got you. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that sort of would make him harder to satirize as well. No, I mean, it's true. I mean, I did an interview in the, the big issue this, this week with John Oliver, and he was saying he is kind of funny in a in a very basic way, but he understands the rhythms of jokes and comedy, and he utilizes them. I mean, we must forget what he's, and he's not an idiot, you know, he's deluded, and he's erratic, and dangerous, but he's not an idiot. He's smart, but smart at certain things. He's a smart salesperson. That's his whole, entire career. He's selling himself as going to be terrific. You know, he's going to do a deal with America that would be better than any other deal. You know, it's all talk, but you're kind of lured into it. You're you're slightly dazzled and charmed by it. You know, and and part of that is the is the humor is the it's not self-deprecation. It's it's against his opponents, but it is it employs a comedian's method of undercutting someone and deflating someone, a figure in authority. And, and that puts him in the eyes of the public as the David attacking the Goliath, strangely enough. You know, so that's that's where he's coming from. There are also, though, dangerous undercurrents, you know, parallels. I'm not saying he's like Stalin, but Stalin 
killed opposition by calling anyone who disagreed with him an enemy of the people, you know, turned them into opposition became criminal. And what Trump does is that, you know, is shut down the opposition by shaming them, by calling them fake news or, or by saying they're being unpatriotic. It's that similar tendency to take the counter argument and just regard it as as a weapon hurled at you and therefore must be stopped. And that's a dangerous tendency I find in him. One of the things that's hard about covering him as a reporter is that sometimes when he comes out with these things, you know, attacks a particular media yeah. organization, I think it was on NBC last week, there's something almost a bit kind of playful about it. Yeah. And you can't quite, you know, calibrate your interpretation to work out if it's kind of genuinely sinister. I know. Whether there really is a parallel with something, you know, a bit 1930s, or if it's him sort of playing with his audience a little bit. It's a little bit, yes. Yes, I've often thought that. In fact, the the people he attacks most are the ones he's most obsessed with and actually has a kind of an admiration. I mean, he he talks about the failing New York Times, reads the New York Times every day. You know, he gives lots of, I think he's probably given more interviews to the New York Times than to any other publication. Failing MSNBC, which he watches every day. You know, know, Crooked Hillary, who, you know, he, he and the Clintons go way back and there are interviews you can dig out of him endorsing the Clintons and saying what a wonderful woman Hillary Clinton is and what a great politician. You know, so it's a, it's a strange, it's almost like he does this, but would turn privately to the target and, and say, it's just business. You know, I don't mean that. I've got to say this. Mm-hmm. You know, the people love it. You know, that's the, the kind of, but that's why he's kind of dangerous because he's using language as just a tactic He's using these threats as a tactic. They don't mean anything other than the immediate effect that they're designed to produce. That's all they're there for, you know, and it's kind of working. I do suspect, though, that people are eventually going to get tired of it. You know, how many times can he say he's the greatest president ever? You know, when things aren't happening, it will start to kind of sound a bit thin, really. It's my only hope. There's a, not so much the death of Stalin, but in some of your earlier work, there mm. is, you know, a view of politics and power that is, I wouldn't quite say kind of cynical, but the the comedy often comes from the fact that people are kind of out there, mm. and, you know, out for themselves, you know, incredibly vain, narcissistic and, and so forth. How accurately does that reflect your view of politics? I mean, no, I mean, I love politics and I, you know, I, you write Initially, when you start as a writer, you write about what it is you like and which you know about. And, you know, I was a political geek and, and uh, you know, the drama politics as well. Uh, I grew up in Hillhead, where the, the famous Hillhead by-election, Roy Jenkins trying to become leader of the SDP by winning the Hillhead seat in class. Suddenly, you know, every major politician of every major party was like on the street. You turn the corner and there would be Tony Benn and you'd go to a speakers meeting there would be Edward Heath talking about, you know, and Shirley Williams would be out campaigning. And it was great. I, I loved it. I want people to take part in the political process, which is why I spent the last election trying to urge young voters to register and to, and to vote. Um, I don't want politics to fall apart. I don't want people to be disenchanted with it. My fear, though, and a lot of what's gone into the thick of it, my fear is that politicians have been taking too many people for granted. They've, they've Blair and Cameron were focusing on the marginals in the middle, the middle England, you know, the 100,000 voters who could swing it for them. So everything was directed at them on the understanding that everyone else would vote for them anyway. And what you then, 
not surprisingly saw was the number of people taking part in elections dropping. You know, it used to be up at like 80, 85 percent in the 50s. And the two main parties between them used to get what, about 90 percent of the vote. It was starting to drop. So the last Blair government, I think, was something like elected on the basis of was it 34, 35 percent of the vote and a low turnout and yet had a majority. And that's why people feel disenchanted. So what I was trying to show in, in those in those programs were, were were politicians getting more and more narrowly focused on fewer and fewer people and being paranoid that their message to those people was being disrupted or that they'd said the wrong thing, you know, whereas these vast swathes of the electorate who weren't being spoken to. And what we've seen in the last seven years or so are these, you know, forgotten masses in the electorate turning somewhere else. So you're getting UKIP or you're getting, you know, the Corbyn view of what Labour is as opposed to the, the Blairite view of what Labour is. And you're seeing it in America, you know, not people not only turning to Donald Trump, but turning to Bernie Sanders. You know, it's like, give us something different then because the same old people have been saying the same old things, but to fewer and fewer of us. That And that's the frustration. And, you know, and it does worry me if it's not corrected, there will be violence and anger spilling out. Yeah, which won't be very funny. Um, no. I was a political reporter in Washington when Veep started. All I'm right. sure you know this because people have said it to you already. But no, Veep had a cult following early on among political reporters because mm. a lot of the stuff that we came across, you know, resembled plot lines in, in mm. Veep. And I know there was a certain amount of kind of cross-fertilization mm. there. The one thing that I suppose it didn't quite ring true to me was that, you know, some of the politicians I come across are genuinely idealistic Oh, people. absolutely. Yes, yes, and, yes. And I wonder if yes. that's a hard thing for comedy to take yeah. on because it's not that funny. It's not, and it's boring to watch, you know. <laughs> a half-hour comedy about a minister sitting down and going through her kind of briefing papers and making some decisions would be, you know, a fascinating documentary, I'm sure. But, yeah, there's no, there's no story there. So, of course, yes. And I kind of argue that actually the ones that the audience sympathize with most are the elected politicians. You know, in the thick of it, it was Nicola Murray that you kind of felt she had an agenda. Her agenda was social mobility. And and it's being hampered by everything else around her. It's being hampered by the media, by the number 10, the lack of money, the, the advisors giving her the wrong advice, the, the unfortunate accident in front of a poster or whatever. And similarly in Veep, you know, Selena Meyer, we, she did start with some things that she wanted to do. You know, she wanted to do Senate vote reform and environmental issues, green jobs and all this sort of thing. And, and I think what we're trying to show is just to survive in that world, unfortunately, principles start being compromised and, and, and decisions get made, which is I'd love to back that, but I can't because I'll be sacked. So I won't back it. But, you know, one day when I'm in power, I will back it. You know, that that kind of putting stuff off for later when you're in charge kind of thing. And I just want to show that, you know, that's how people who start off doing one thing can end up doing another. But I'm not saying all politicians are evil and nasty. Nobody commits a crime in none of the shows. N nobody commits a crime. <laughs> what they do is have to deal with kind of minor crisis on a daily basis. But, you know, I, I, I have an admiration for people who go into politics because they want to change things. They want to make a difference. And it's a sort of a warning as to what is it that we are doing to them that is stopping them from that? You know, we expect politicians to have the perfect answer 
whenever a microphone is shoved in front of their face. We expect them to be on duty 24 hours a day. We don't like it when they go on holiday. You know, we don't like it if they go to the opera. You know, so what? And I, so I, th I lay a lot of the blame on us. You know, it's not just the media. It's just it's us. Our expectations are that they have to be perfect from the word go, and nobody is perfect, and we should allow for that. Armando, in the interview, thank you very much. Go and see the death of Stalin. It's terrific. Thanks so much for stopping by. Pleasure. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.